This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu. That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF format or to purchase this book. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushduni. Copyright 2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Published by Calcedon Ross House Books. P.O. Box 158, Vallecito, California, 95251. All rights reserved. Preface. The Meaning of Confession. A Sermon on Romans 10, 1-11. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or, Who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. In the mind of a Christian, the word confession is commonly associated with confession of sins. A like association is made by the man in the street, who associates the word with true confession, criminal confession, etc. In any case, a confession of sin. There is a long background to this kind of association that goes back to the early church of the 2nd century AD. There was a concern in the early church with strengthening the Christian life and character. They were so deeply concerned with the Christian character that a great deal of attention was given to sin and to restitution for sin. As a consequence, a system of public confession of sin arose in the early church. The long history of the matter of confession begins in the 2nd century with the custom of public confession being established in the church. Each sinner Each person who had offended against the laws of the community, against the Christian standard of conduct, stood up at the service the week following the offence and made a public confession of his sins. This custom continued for some time and became the first of several systems of confession. The church was concerned about the sin of the community, the sin of the members of the church, and wanted to make a witness to the Roman Empire that would be a telling one. Because the church faced a world deep in sin, a world characterised by the most vicious practices and immorality, the church wanted to preserve her character. 
To preserve her character, she instituted a rigorous discipline for those who offended against the faith. This first system soon manifested its weaknesses. Christians approached the matter of public confession, which involved public speaking, in very different ways. On the one hand, most Christians were hesitant and fumbled for words. They took a great deal of time to stammer out only a few sentences. On the other hand, some got up and spoke at great length, going into minute detail about their sins. In either case, inordinately large amounts of time were consumed for public confession. The worship services went on endlessly as person after person took far too long to confess their sins. As a result, a new method, a second system, was instituted, whereby confession was made to a presbyter of the church. At the next service, the presbyter got up and recited the sins of so-and-so in a sentence or two, going down the line. Thus, the presbyter summarised the sins of the church members and publicly proclaimed them. Discipline was instituted against all those who sinned. They were first presented to the local presbyter for imposition of hands, appearing in his presence wearing sackcloth with ashes upon their head to denote their repentance. Those who made their public confession of sins either in person or through the presbyter were obliged to cut off their hair or go veiled as a token of their sorrow and mourning. They were required to abstain from many of the innocent diversions of life, including abstention from bathing and attendance at banquets. They had to observe all the fasts of the church. They could not marry during the time of their penance, nor could they perform marital duties to their spouses. Moreover, they were required to pray while kneeling. The custom in the Jewish synagogue and the early church was to pray while standing. This circumstance was where we get our present custom observed in many of the churches, Roman Catholic, Episcopal and others of kneeling to pray in public worship. Although the, or the original form of praying in public worship in the early church was standing to pray, this gradually gave way over the centuries to a congregation that prayed while kneeling. The reason for the change was that the sinners soon included virtually the entire congregation and with everyone being a penitent, all therefore had to kneel. However, as the centuries passed by, it became increasingly evident that this second system was not the answer. Its flaws were apparent when the people attending a meeting, a service of worship. Even hearing a presbyter stand up and reading a long recital of the sins of the members of the congregation was very disruptive to the service of the church. For many of the women folk, as well as some of the men folk, it was hard to remember anything of the sermon when they went home. It was so much easier to remember the sins of all the church members and to talk about them at the dinner table, recounting this or that person's misconduct, commenting upon it and upon the punishment that was imposed. Therefore, Pope Leo the Great in the 5th century decreed that after the period, after that period there should be no more public proclamation of sin, of public confession of the sins of individual members. He substituted private confession in its place. The confession of sin was to be maintained in absolute confidence by the priest to whom it was confessed. This third system was also instituted to improve the life of the church. 
Each of the earliest systems of confession was instituted in order to strengthen the Christian life, to improve the character of the Christian community. Regrettably, each system only deepened the sin of the Christian community. It was a tragic fact that people gathered together in the church and actually enjoyed hearing the presbyter, the confessor, stand up and recite the sins of the various members who had offended during the previous week. The public confessions under the earlier systems were disruptive to the life of the church, yet the minute, yet the minute they were ended, another problem arose. Many of the Christians now felt free to sin, especially to sin sexually, knowing now that there would be no more publicity attached to their sinning and to their confessing. And so the step of reform taken by Pope Leo the Great of the 5th century only compounded the sin of the community. As the centuries advanced, the matter remained very much the same, and Christian life and character and the community at large grew weaker. All the efforts of the developing church, which soon came to be known as the Roman Catholic Church, as well as those developed by the Eastern Orthodox churches, failed utterly to reform the Christian life and the character of the community. We must take for granted, we must assume, in all fairness, that all these steps in dealing with the confession of sin flowed out of a Christian motivation, out of a desire to improve the Christian witness of the individual Christian, to strengthen his life, give him a resistance against sin, and to improve his faithfulness to his Lord. Nonetheless, the end result of all these systems was nothing but failure. It has been so ever since. There have been efforts since the Reformation to introduce new modes of confession of sin, and the same tragic outcomes have repeated themselves in each instance. For example, not too many years ago, the Buchmanites, the Moral Rearmament Movement, the Oxford Group Movement, as it has also been known, revived the public confession of sins. In their meetings, the individual members would stand up and confess their sins. These public confessions soon had to be stopped because the meetings became so scandalous in their nature that they increasingly attracted people whose sole purpose for attending was to hear the scandalous details of the lives of the group. We must recognise that every attempt the Church has made throughout its long history to deal with public confession of sins has ended in failure. Its attempt to deal with the confession of sins in privacy has also ended in failure. At the time of the Reformation, one Protestant group alone abolished the confessions of sins. Confession of sins, a circumstance that comes as a surprise to many Christians. Calvinism alone and its heirs the Presbyterian and Reformed Churches insisted on the total abolition of the confession of sins excepting the general confession made by the congregation in public prayer which was a formal matter. Other churches subsequently dropped confession but only under the influence of the Presbyterian and Reformed Churches. How are we to understand then this matter of the meaning of confession? Why has the Church had so much trouble throughout the centuries with regard to the confession of sins? Actually, the New Testament rarely speaks of the confession of sins. In fact, the whole of Scripture rarely speaks of it, except in relationship to God. Two things are apparent as we study the Scriptures. First, confession of sins is almost invariably made to God and to God alone. 
The one or two references that deal with the confession to anyone other than God involved a public offence where the life of the church was directly affected. In order for proper amends to be made, a confession of sin was made by the person committing the sin, either to the elders of the church or to the group or individual affected by the offence. Second, confession of sins is a very minor, incidental meaning of the word confession in scripture. The word confession is not primarily associated with confession of sins, but with confessing Christ. Paul clearly says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that, the, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Our Lord also spoke of confession in the same manner when he said to his disciples that all they who confessed him, he would confess before his Father in heaven, and all who would deny him, he would deny before his Father in heaven. The basic scriptural meaning of confession, then, is not confession of sins, but confession of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. Confession of sins was introduced into the church because of a false faith. It was an attempt whereby men sought to atone for their sins. It was a substitute means of salvation. The mindset that led to the early church's confession systems was the very thing Paul spoke of in the 10th chapter of Romans when he stated that Israel's zeal, though undoubted, was not a zeal according to knowledge. Theirs was a zeal, said Paul, operating in behalf of their own righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness before God. When men seek to establish their own righteousness before God, they seek to do it by justifying themselves. One step in justifying themselves is to make atonement for their sins. Therefore, the Judaizing, legalistic influences working in the church, led inexorably to each subsequent system of public confession of sins. The sinner, in order to put himself in a right relationship with God, submitted himself to certain acts of penance, and performed certain ritual duties in order to make atonement for his sins. All the rules and regulations concerning the confession of sins that marked the early church from the 2nd century forward led inevitably to the Roman Catholic Church, to a system whereby man worked out his salvation, offering atonement for his sins through the performance of certain acts of penance. But the Reformation, and John Calvin in particular, clearly saw how Christ's salvation for us affected our righteousness and therefore forever abolished and did away with the whole system of confession of sins. Paul was dealing with Jews whose trust was in self-righteousness. Their confession was thus a false one. They witnessed to themselves and not to the Lord. Men try to save themselves either by confessing sins endlessly or by indulging in a confession of self-righteousness. And so it has been always. Men seek constantly to establish their righteousness, either by confession of sins and saying, I have absolved myself of them, or by a confession of self-righteousness. The confession of sins in the church reveals a repetition of the old Jewish struggle of the law. Man struggles with sin, fights against it, tries to gain a personal righteousness, a righteousness that stems from his own nature. No man is ever saved by confessing sins. No man ever establishes his righteousness because he has confessed his sins. More often than not, his confession of sins has only furthered his sin. 
let's consider a concrete instance of this result. A case was brought to my attention not too long ago whereby a dying man called in his wife and confessed to her that he had through the years been consistently unfaithful to her. He asked her to forgive him and soon thereafter passed away. When the pastor of the family had called and spoken to the man, the husband had made no confession of any such nature to the pastor. Was the man's confession a Christian one? Was it done out of any motive that could be called godly, holy or righteous? There is only one conclusion that any Christian could make in any such situation. The man's confession of sin was a further act of sin because it was not made to God. He hadn't confessed the sin to the pastor. In fact, he only spoke with satisfaction concerning himself to the pastor. This man made his confession to his wife, the wife to whom he had been consistently unfaithful through the years. The woman whom he had in various ways hurt and offended in life, he had now further hurt. He now further harmed her with a confession that robbed her memories of her married life of all peace and happiness. That confession of sin was motivated only by pride, only by sin, only by a desire to further hurt the woman who, in spite of his sin, had been faithful to him. I have never yet heard any man who, under such circumstances, confessed such a sin while simultaneously showing grace or a truly Christian repentance. This was not a Christian act. It was an unchristian act because it was an attempt to absolve himself in part, but in reality it was only a further act of offence against his wife. Confession of sin, if it be honest, is to God. It seeks then the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it does not confess sin to those whom it has hurt and who are ignorant of it. It primarily seeks to confess the graciousness of Jesus Christ. I have never yet found any man who went out of his way to confess sins to people who were ignorant of them, particularly his wife, who also showed any signs of grace. This is because our confession basically is not a negative one. We cannot overlook the fact that confessing sins to God is something we do daily as we approach Him. We only approach God on that basis, sinners saved by grace who approach Him mindful of our sins and mindful of His grace. But our confession always is this, that in Christ we have found salvation. To confess sins, to deal with the confession of sins at length, is to continue struggling in terms of the law, trying to make atonement by word of mouth, by acts of contribution or penance, trying to gain a personal righteousness in terms of our own nature. It is an empty attempt to persuade ourselves that just because we have said we are sorry, we are now holy. Christ supersedes the law as a way of salvation, and when we accept Christ, we accept His salvation and His righteousness and are delivered from the burden of our sins. Instead of confessing sin and self-righteousness then, we confess Christ. Christ is our real righteousness, applied by God to us and ever nearer to our ever near to our hearts. And so Paul declares this great truth to the Romans as he commented on the fallacy of the Jews. Israel, said Paul, showed a great deal of zeal. They were ready by acts of penance, acts of contribution, acts of confession, to strive, to struggle with their own nature to gain victory over sin. 
Paul declared they had indeed had a zeal, but not after knowledge, because those who would seek to be righteous under the law must become perfect under the law, and this is impossible. Rather, we have the word, which is near to us, nigh to our own heart, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. By this simple act of confession of faith in Jesus Christ, the whole burden of sin is forever removed. By this simple act of confession of faith in Jesus Christ, we step from the realm of sin into the realm of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. This is the glory of our faith. We do not need to deal with our sins. Christ deals with them for us, and having once and for all dealt with them for us, his victory is a permanent one. Therefore, let us gladly confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts, where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.